Hey everybody, welcome into Mining Stock Daily. This is Trevor Hall. This is our long form episode for the week. Happy Friday morning to you and I hope everybody's going to have a great last day of trading and a wonderful weekend. Two interviews today to share with you. First, we welcome back the head of mining and metals with Desjardins, Mr. Bruno Kaiser. He returns back to the podcast one more time. And then we also welcome the CEO of Integra Resources, Mr. George Salamis, to walk us through the latest drill results reported earlier this week from Black Sheep, which is part of the Delamar project. And I tell you what, I'm really excited with uh, about that Black Sheep area in the project. I don't think the market really recognizes just how important that is. So I talked to George about what's been happening there and just really great conversation with him as well. It's always great to touch base with any of the Integra crew. Speaking of Integra, I would like to thank them for their sponsorship of the podcast. We'd also like to thank Western Copper and Gold, Corvus Gold, and Rio2 for their continued support. Please go to the website miningstockdaily.com, take a gander from the full list of our sponsors, click on their links, and visit their websites. That would be much appreciated. If you have any questions or ideas, things you want to hear, let me know. Shoot me an email, trevor at clearcreekdigital.com. I appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in every day and every week. So let's get to my conversation with Mr. Bruno Kaiser. Take care, everybody. Be well. Welcome to our first segment of our in-depth long-form interview here on Mining Stock Daily. Happy to welcome back an old friend of the show that's the head of metals and mining for Desjardins, Mr. Bruno Kaiser. Uh, Bruno, it's been a while. Welcome back to Mining Stock Daily, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, always a pleasure to speak. How, how's the winter been treating you? It's <laughs> a little cold up there in Toronto. Well, you know, it's standard issue Canadian winter. Uh, no sign of any global warming outside my frigid front yard. Um, <laughs> looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's been a winter of adjustment, obviously, uh, starting the winter out with, with the whole COVID regime versus walking into it midway as we did last year. Um, but, you know, people adapt and adjust. You and I have a number of things we want to talk about. Uh, you and I have always chatted about... Uh, visiting the role of passive investing in the mining sector. We are going to get a follow-up from that uh, here momentarily, but I really wanted to first get your thoughts on just an overall sentiment, what you're seeing from uh, your position at a big institution such as Desjardins, uh, the institutional analysis of the gold mining sector. We're in this lull. We're in this seven-month extended correction after that big move in gold uh, into last summer. Uh the, you know, from what I'm seeing, there's really not a whole lot of love for gold miners or the explorers right now. Uh, yeah, I think that that is very much the case, unfortunately. And um, I would say it is it has it has caught, you know, most institutional observers a bit by surprise in that we expected 2021 to start off uh, rather robustly. January tends to be a good month uh, or the first quarter of the year tends to be a good month for a number of different uh, um, things with respect to precious metals in particular. Um, and, it, and it obviously hasn't shaped up. So this year, um, with precious metals being part of obviously part of the capital market system as a whole, uh, we're also in a very 
bizarro world capital markets as so to say that precious metals isn't isn't functioning as we expected uh, one would also say that extends to many other things including um um, you know, the likes of the Teslas of the world and and the explosive reaction in Bitcoin and some of these Reddit type things that we've seen. So there's there's not a lot of logic anymore. And that's an extension of, uh, you know, the zero interest rate policies going into what are we now year uh, 12 <laughs> or 20 rather effectively, right? Year 20. So are you, do, you, do you think that gold and silver precious metals, well, mainly just gold kind of being hidden from this uh, just chaotic equities market and the, the tech stocks, the, the Reddit boards, that all that thing, like maybe that is the silver lining that will be, <laughs> will show its face here. Yeah, silver lining to the silver lining. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think that, you know, historically speaking, um, the precious metal sector has had a very strong influence by retail and speculative investors. Right. I mean, it, it is sort of, or once upon a time was the go-to for speculative investing before, um, you know, say 30 or 40 years ago, before the technology space um, became the, 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 you know, the very risky fast money type speculation. Um, we have a proliferation of investment vehicles for that now. So there's a bit of, um, investors seeking the uh the the fastest car on the lap going around the race so whatever that might be catching the attention of the market in a particular period of time um you know you can go back and track and it does suck a bit of the money and the air out of the precious metal space because it takes that that marginal speculative investor out from a from an institutional perspective um similarly it then has a follow-on uh, catch-22 effect which is that it's really hard to beat the market when the market is going against you. So institutions have negative performance and then they lose money in redemptions. Um, and so you need the whole momentum swing to come back in for that to turn around. So now, as you mentioned, we're at about seven months of a subpar performance in the space. And I'd say it accelerated a bit in January more than we would have anticipated. That's, that's had that, uh, that kick on impact. Yeah. Oh, how about things in the base metal space? Is it, it seems like it's a different story here. Do you have more positive sentiment on the inflation trade looking at explorers and miners in the base metals such as copper and nickel? And, you know, they, I can go down the board and there's a lot of, of those metals that have really outperformed, uh, you know, the equities. Yeah. Um, and I think there's, I think the biggest reason for that is, well, there are two. One, there's a speculation that at some point in time, if economies come off of COVID lockdowns, et cetera, then by definition, we're going to have to see some turn from whatever horrible spot we're in uh, to the upside, uh, which means uh, marginally increasing consumption of, of, of base inputs. And the second is uh, the continuing ESG um, phenomena where funds are looking to uh, profit off of electrification of 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 things versus uh, versus um, you know petro energy uh, driven situations, and 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 it is maybe increasingly becoming a widely appreciated thing that for every amount that they take out of the energy sector, you have to add to the mining sector because there's no in between. If you want to substitute 
uh, carbon-based energy uh, with some form of electrical energy, that has to directly or indirectly be supplied by the mining sector, be it uranium as a direct uh, means or indirect through solar and wind and and other things where all the components that drive that are made from products that are mined. And then all of it has to be stored in batteries. So obviously there's there's a there's an affiliation or there's a there's a draw to battery metals which are nickel, cobalt, graphite, and um, um, <laughs> lithium. Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> so uh, that that uh, and and then you have to move it along copper, right? You have to move it along copper wires. So that is a a big component driving the base metal space for sure. That's an interesting way to look at it. For every unit you take away from the petrochemical energy platform you have to add to basically the metals complex that is yeah there's no in between yeah yeah i haven't thought about that far you know it's very simple i I don't know why i'm surprised to hear it but it makes sense well yeah and you know we'll see where it gets to when when it comes to the reality of it where uh, it comes and hits things in the permitting stage of things around the world, right? Nobody is particularly keen on pipelines and everybody is negative on the energy space. But, you know, mines have to go somewhere and mines are, you know, unsightly things. I'm, I'm not against mining, obviously. I'm very pro-mining. But mines are hard things to permit and they're hard things to permit quickly. So um, it's just hard to see that you can move from one to the other and be against the underlying uh, let's call it environmental, um, you know, side effects. Yeah. Uh, you know, from, from your seat up there in Toronto and uh, being Canadian based, uh, you've probably seen, there's been a lot of dialogue in the United States kind of about, uh, sourcing American metals to build the next round of energy infrastructure, like, you know, kind of build it at home. Um, from, from what you're seeing up in Canada is, you know, is that, does this does that idea continue to have legs for junior miners based in the United States? Um, yeah, absolutely, and in Canada for that matter. And and frankly, when it comes to say the rare earth dialogue, um, you know, ten plus years ago, that was the underlying talk, and it made sense then that these are all strategic metals. China overwhelmingly dominates the rare earths processing. Uh, which is actually the tricky thing. The tricky, the secret about rare earths is they're not actually that rare, which is, I'm not sure why they're called rare earths. They're not rare and hard to find and mine. They're hard to process. And all of the, um, all of the intellectual uh, capacity is tied up in China and all of the refining is tied up in China and processing rare earths is actually a really nasty environmental thing the tailings ponds and um, the whole process is not a pleasant environmental process. So they're there. Uh, they've leaked out of the U.S. Uh, gradually over the decades. And now I think they were even making a fairly public notice of um, extorting the U.S. Um, technology and military industrial complex over the fact that China controls the rare earth market. So um, that is something that absolutely has to move back onshore, if you will. And Canada, although we're a separate sovereign nation, you know, easily the U.S.'s closest ally and obviously the land border, I don't think that there's an issue between having production in the U.S. versus having production in Canada. But we have seen a lot of, uh, a lot of effort go back into the U.S. in rare earths and in, uh, and in lithium. 
Are you starting to see potential deals being made or more money, more capital coming into the energy metals space and on top of that, the critical materials space in North America? Um, tangentially, we are. I mean, we see the ESG funds uh, loading up and looking for means to deploy them. Where they haven't really been directly deployed is in the startup capital of new mines. And I think that's, I just have to imagine at some point that dam bursts and it's got to follow because we can't have all of this talk and all of this desire for everything that people want in terms of uh, a green economy and green energy without there being new development of of sources, right? Um, you know, there was a, a junior company I was speaking with the other day that had a very, uh, that has a very high grade project in Canada, uh, lithium hard rock. And, um, and you know, they're, they're not talking about tons of money, but it's really, really hard to find institutionally. So, uh, the present source that everybody's looking for in that realm is to have, uh, people in the supply chain, say the big auto manufacturers or somebody uh, down downstream in supply, provide the capital. But at at a point in time, that that has to move upstream and and become more conventionally uh, funded. So something very similar to what we saw between Tesla and Piedmont Lithium months ago. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know uh, what we what we hear is that VW is getting involved in. Um, you know, VW is as your listeners may be aware, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they're the largest auto manufacturer in the world, at least by volume. <clears throat> and, um, and, uh, and they have built and designed an entirely new chassis entirely around the electric vehicle that can be used for internal combustion uh, in terms of the chassis design. It also works designed to to facilitate. So they're, they're dealing with uh, graphite supplies and lithium supplies and, and that type of thing. So they're looking into it, but at some point in time, they'll need to disintermediate themselves. So uh, is the, is the middleman, the supply chain, are they kind of shaking in their boots right now? Uh, the supply chain in lith in battery metals. Yeah. No, I think right now, um, you know, I think now for the time being, we're still in a position where, um, there's enough nickel graphite and, and lithium that can be, that can be accessed to satisfy the market. It's the hockey stick of demand that people are concerned about. Um, it's not the present day. So I think that if you are a big company like VW, you need to be, be able to go to sleep at night knowing you've got that secured. But once it is secured, you can, you can basically let it go back to, to, um, you know, finding its, its, its self, uh, it's self-feeding mechanism as they do, as they would do now in auto parts, for example. So is there an opportunity for some arbitrage here for the institutions? If you're not seeing a lot of institutional money coming in and the energy metals, um, you know, is there an opportunity for a hedge fund to come in and start making their own market here? Uh, it, sorry. It, is there an opportunity for arbitrage? The problem, and this, and this, this goes a bit to, I know another thing we'll touch on, it goes to liquidity, right? So the institutions right now that are, uh, that are playing in the ESG metals uh, or, you know, battery metals and, and, uh, and green, green energy metals, so to speak, other than copper, where you can buy Glencore and BHP uh, and have your liquidity, <clears throat> they, and for that matter, nickel, um, 
they are uh, they're 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 held back by liquidity, right? So you can only invest a certain amount of dollars, and you can't get out of them very very easily. And so it's it's a very nimble, small, bespoke type fund that and knowledgeable fund that that at present is playing in them, because the larger uh, funds that have um, uh, a, a huge passive component, they simply can't. The, the companies aren't big enough; they're not liquid enough. Okay, interesting. Uh, let's re- let's revisit uh, this ongoing topic that you and I chat about almost every time, and that's kind of the role of passive investing. Um, a lot of the ETFs and mining right now have I, I, those charts are looking pretty ugly. <clears throat> that's because gold's looking pretty ugly here. There's not a whole lot of uh, it's not it's it's not having its uh, shining moment again, unfortunately. But uh, has your thesis changed? Has the role of passive investing in mining changed as over the last year and in this chaos we've been living through? No, um, as a as a whole, passive investing continues to become a deeper and broader component of the capital markets at large, and mining is no different. Um, where it, it continues to impact things in mining and. And companies are more aware of it now than when you and I first started talking about it. Um, companies are aware of the importance of being in an index. A lot of M&A discussion is centered around how will this impact our index inclusion or growth towards becoming an index-included company. Um, because once you are part of a, a you know a viably you know large enough index, then you you start to attract all that passive money. And if you're not, you're really left it. You're in a different game entirely. <clears throat> and and mining is one of these situations where the overwhelming number of companies, like if in, for example, on the TSX, uh, there are say 1,100 listed Explorco and producing companies. There's probably you know 50 or less that are index eligible. Hmm. Interesting. One of the big topics, I mean, you've probably been watching and that has been uh, the quote hashtag silver squeeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there goes back to this, these ETFs, like this SLV that's supposedly backed by physical silver. And if they add shares, they're adding physical silver and you can call on those shares in exchange for the physical metal GLD, same story, only on the gold side. Right. Uh but there are a lot of prime examples that we've shared here on the podcast of specific in investors going to call on that physical metal and those ETFs basically doing, it seems like everything they can to not deliver the metal. Oh yeah. And in the, in the exchange, uh, you know, tell, what's the thought? Do you think there is, I mean, what's going on with these physical metal ETFs? Uh, you know, from, from what you're seeing, your analysis, and, uh, you know, what's the concern here? Is it, it, you know, is the feet to the fire here on these, on these, on these ETFs? Look, it is a concern. Um, and, and there's a bit of a black spot in terms of the understanding of how it all, all works, frankly, because, um, the precious metals trade like many other commodities, maybe even more so than other commodities is mercurial, um, There is no question that uh, if we say the paper market for precious metals, both gold and silver, uh, is very, very out of balance with the physical underlying market. Um, That, I mean, that is simply a fact. Uh, The the amount of gold and silver that notionally is supposed to be out there to backstop futures contracts, where if everybody claimed 
to uh, expect delivery of their of their physical that underlies their futures contracts, it wouldn't be possible. The evidence that we see of that is in the physical versus paper price gap. So if you were to go out now and and on a retail basis, there's only a few acts. Uh, uh, access points for this, but if you wanted to buy a uh, a gold eagle or a silver coin, you'll notice that the price gap is it, it the the price I think is something in the order of about twelve dollars an ounce higher, for example, in silver on uh, on coin versus uh, the paper price. So um, I think that there is a lot of um, trading going back and forth to actually borrow. Uh, to be able to put things into accounts to backstop the ETFs, something they have to be compliant because they get audited. But at the end of the day, we've had this discussion before as well, and I know it sounds a bit conspiratorial. There's no way that governments are going to allow, they can allow Bitcoin to explode, but they're not going to allow gold to explode. Gold won't do what Bitcoin does unless it's a day you don't want to go outside because gold is really the barometer of societal health um, in, in, in not just a financial context, but a social construct, construct as well. If gold went from, you know, 1750 or $1,800 an ounce to $10,000 an ounce in the span of weeks, there would be a very bad reason for that. And it would mean that, um, you know, gold is a reserve currency. It means that all faith has been lost in, in, uh, in currency. Bitcoin is not a reserve currency. Bitcoin is a proxy for the U.S. dollar. The only thing you can get out of Bitcoin is U.S. dollars. The gold itself is the backstop for creating a new currency, right? You can put it into a central bank vault and issue paper against it, and you have fiat money. You don't have that with Bitcoin. And that's the that's a substantial difference, right? Um, and I'm not trashing Bitcoin. I'm just yeah. saying, I'm just saying that governments recognize that there is a difference between a reserve currency and a cryptocurrency, and a reserve currency run means very bad things for society's take on the actual currency, fiat currency. So. I think that they will hammer, they will monkey hammer the price down and 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 do whatever they possibly can to uh, punish speculators to be able to avoid this massive run on, on the physical. Despite the hammer down, and I'm glad you said some really interesting things there, uh, Bruno. In fact, um, there's been there's been news. Uh, some some of the key hodlers on the Bitcoin train have been saying that gold is capitulating, and only the dire gold bugs, you know, can't see out of the periphery to get off get off that train. And I completely rolled my eyes back and yeah, don't don't agree with it because they both serve different purposes. I we certainly agree, agree with you. Um, but I, I, I don't want anybody to understand that what I said was that was it was a. Um, was a takedown of of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. It's it's not. They're two different things, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But if we go back to gold, and we're we're, we're still sitting at uh, oh, what are we doing here with gold? It's at up seventeen seventy five. Now, listen, you've been in this mining business for a long time. It's still a healthy price if you're producing gold, ain't it? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh... You know, all-in sustaining costs. We're seeing constantly coming uh, have have companies coming through with all-in sustaining costs for new projects at the thousand eleven hundred dollar range, and that's for modest to low-grade mines. Oh, <laughs> pretty you know, good. You know any you know any other industry that has those good of margins right now? Well, those are cash margins. By the time you load everything else in, they become a little bit more normal. But you know, that's that's. 
in effect, it's kind of like the lifting cost in oil. Um, that isn't necessarily the cost that's going to get you all of your capital back, et cetera. And, and you can, you can pay the piper big time if you haven't got a paid off property and paid off mine. But if you're already in production, if you're a decent sized mine, you have to see a precipitous drop below your all in sustaining cost before you come to this uh, shutdown decision. Right. So if that's what the gold, if that's what really that, that cash cost is the barometer of it's, you know, not only how much cash are you making, but what's the sustainability of your, of your operation. We are in a very healthy space right now. There's another silver. I think last week I lose track of time in COVID, but Agnico put out some stellar numbers last week, right? I mean, they're they're the class act in the uh, in the senior producing uh, company uh, category, and uh, you know they have multiple mines, multiple jurisdictions, and they were gushing cash. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's stick on the on the major on the major miners here. And I do want to move the conversation to M&A. Uh, I've had multiple conversations with other guests in the past couple months with my theory that COVID really put a hindrance on mergers and acquisitions throughout 2020. Uh, just for the fact people couldn't get to site to do proper due diligence and really uh, and really do the research on what's appropriate for their uh, portfolios within their own certain companies. Uh, but with COVID and things getting lifted, it seems like we're on the right track. Vaccines are out. People could be traveling more. Could we be on a better uh, path for more better M&A activity in 2021? I, I do believe that is the case. And I'm just going off of the anecdotal chatter uh and discussions that we have with corporates in MA and it's picked up materially over the course of the last 12 months or nine months really like right since as you point out when covid really slammed everything shut um so it i would say that a majority of the discussions are still let's can i use the term interdomestic you know where travel travel doesn't uh doesn't hobble you as much so uh-huh. you know, uh, it, within north america companies uh, or, or maybe uh, companies that have operations in the same jurisdictions worldwide are looking at combinations. It, it remains, it is becoming more robust amongst the small and uh, lower mid-sized companies to uh, engage in M&A discussions back to the, to the passive funds. They recognize that uh, getting bigger for sake of getting bigger doesn't always make sense, but it has a lot of appeal from a capital markets perspective. Um, and and you're right. I think there's a, there's simply that slow opening up and, and hope uh, that uh, perhaps vaccines might make a difference. But it's also having an impact. Uh, we saw re- we saw reports from both Newmont and Barrick, the two largest gold miners, that obviously reserves are being depleted, and they put out those statistics out there. Uh, they talked about exploration, but I mean exploration doesn't fill those reserves back quickly, do they? Not at all. Um, I mean, it's going to vary somewhat jurisdiction by jurisdiction, depending on, uh, permitting speeds. Um, you know, uh, if you take maybe the worst, the slowest permitting jurisdiction right now, or amongst the slowest might be the U S. Uh, if you look at projects like Rosemont, for example, in the copper space, I mean, um, you know, you could, have, you could, you could measure it now in, in, in starting to get into like school age children graduating type time spaces, right? Um, <laughs> that, uh, that, that was for a deposit that was at the bankable feasibility stage and we're at 
10 years, I'd say, or something in that nature, right? Um, That's just for that. Um, Polymet has the same problem in Minnesota. Uh, If you need to go through the evaluation, suppose you found a target that was never, never had the rock kicked over before, uh, it's going to be seven or eight years probably of exploration and evaluation just to get it to the point where you're ready to consider permitting and then it's how long is a piece of string depending on the on the jurisdiction so if they need something replaced it's not coming through the drill bit from a grassroots green project Um, they need to go and buy something that's producing and operating or close to it close to because you can you can you can take something you can maybe look to refill your pipeline if it's something that's three or four years out you're going to take that permitting punt for a permanent construction punt for three or four years, but you're not going to do it for 10 to 12 years. Well, 10 to 12 years, I mean, you are running the risk of missing the cycle. Well, there's, yeah, you're running the risk of missing the cycle. And obviously the further out a project is to getting permitted and being operate and, and operating, uh, the greater the risk and the variability in that outcome. So you have a much greater visibility on the timeline outcome, the closer it is to production. Obviously, the best case scenario is in production. The challenge is with the in-production merger, this goes back to the merger mania, if you will, of uh, the early part of uh, you know, the 2010s and, and, and the latter part of the first, of, you know, say 2006 to 2012, that period, is that typically speaking, unless you have a really compelling strategic and synergistic reason for acquiring production, you don't typically get as much value out of acquiring production as you would um, out of acquiring something that is not yet in production because mm-hmm. you would still ostensibly have the benefit of a lot of unfound ounces if we're talking about gold um, versus in production, you have a stronger view on how many more ounces there are and you're paying full freight for everything that you can see and produce. So. Right. Is it just a question of keeping the the treadmill flowing? If that's the cost of doing business, then it is, but it's not necessarily value adding. Yeah, no, I, I see him. I hear him. Oh. Uh, bro, that's a lot of good insights there. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Let's let's wrap it there. And um, you know, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It has been too long. Always a pleasure to talk, and uh, and happy to chat in future as well. Yeah, we'll have you back on. We'll we'll see it. Maybe have you back on and break down some of this uh, hopeful M and A activity that does kick back in uh, this year. But uh, you know, until the next time, Bruno, take care of you and your family. Okay. Likewise, thank you. everybody welcome into mining stock daily this is our second segment of our friday morning long form interview as we like to air as we get everybody into the weekend uh, we are connecting with uh, a good uh, well a good colleague of ours that has been a long supporter of the podcast and that's mr george salamis of integra resources george it's been a long time since we've had you on the podcast but uh, it's great to have you on because we got a lot to talk about today Trevor, we do indeed a snowy good morning to you in Denver. And I believe you, are you still up in uh, the Whistler Mountains? 
I am, and but and Vancouver as well, and both are getting snow today. Okay, so, so yeah. all right, how about that? Uh, let's uh, we we need to do a follow up on the recent drill results that you published this week out of Black Sheep. Um, there's a lot of significance. I mean, you didn't put. It's not like you put out just a ton of drill results. It wasn't like you know, here's 30 drill results to prove up the point. Uh, but there was, I think, three or four different results that really put some context behind Black Sheep. But first, before we get into the meaning of these specific drill results and where they were and the targets, I've got to reiterate. I and, and I maybe I just didn't appreciate it enough, George. The size a black sheep alone and what it means for the entire Delamar project in Idaho. Can you comment on yeah, that? Yeah, it's it's a it's a big area and actually just to to your first comment um you know it's not like our first release announcing these these discoveries uh were related to 20 holes they're literally related to four drill holes and you now usually you know my experience is you know it takes 20 or 30 holes to hit gold in a new area uh, enough so to announce a discovery, and so that's that's what makes this this news release really germane and really exciting for us, right? At the end of the day, if you look at the map, and so uh, black sheep. I'm trying to think of it in my head. So black sheep is um, just uh, is it south southeast of Delamar? Is that do I have my bearings? Actually, uh, uh, yeah. So Delamar is south southeast. Black sheep is north northwest. Okay, okay very good. Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm trying to get this thing picture in my head but if you look at the boundary i mean is it safe to say that it's bigger maybe twice the size of what delamar and florida mountain is combined yeah in fact you could you could take the footprint of delamar uh which is 3.3 million ounces of gold equivalent and take the footprint of florida which is 1.1 million ounces and you could fit those two deposits in times two or three into this black sheep area. It's a big, big area. It's 30 square kilometers. It's big. And geologically that, uh, mineralization looks to be just going straight through the middle of black sheep from Delaware. Yeah. Um, I, the first, the first boxes of core that came out from the very first hole that we drilled on Georgiana, um, basically right after Christmas, you know, we were really getting excited by those. I was getting, I was getting the 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 photos of the uh, the core boxes from site, like raw, straight straight back from the drill. And you know, you could you could feel the excitement in the geologists as they were opening these core boxes, and they were emailing me these photos. And you know, I was getting excited thousands of kilometers away, looking at these things. It was boxes and boxes of the same type of host rock, the same type of mineralization and alteration as you would get if you were to drill a hole straight through the heart of Delamar itself, which is a really big gold silver deposit. So we were really excited by that. And remember, I think it was two years ago I was on site up there and uh, you know, Max was driving us around and I remember going to Black Sheep. I mean, you know, he was literally just picking up rocks off the surface and showing, saying, you know, this is the epithermal style of what we were finding at Delamar. Like, this is our, you know, like, I remember two years ago, Max was super excited to drill it. Well, congratulations, Max. You finally got into it and, uh, you know, had some success there. Um, but the potential, I mean, I can't reiterate enough for investors of Integra and people looking at this, at, at the company, 
the potential to really increase the scope and the size of this project. Uh, I don't know if it's appreciated as much as the market should right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> will the market appreciate this someday? For sure. The appreciation will come when we, you know, announce more results from this area and it starts to become real. I mean, maybe the market's gun shy about one hit wonders not panning out ultimately, but we're, you know, we've just barely scratched the, the surface on this huge area that has really big uh, soil geochemical expressions. In other words, the, you know, a measurement of the gold in the soils and the silver in the soil shows these targets that are kilometers long, kilometer wide. The geophysics shows the same identical signatures, again, to what you would see at Delamar, Florida Mountain, yet we just have three drill holes. We just announced our first uh, three drill holes. I think for me, where this kind of resonates the most, and I've been thinking about this, you know, in my earlier days, back in the olden days, when I was a card-carrying geologist um, logging drill core, uh, whenever, you know, these teams that I was a part of, and this was always a team, this was never one person making a discovery, it was always a team effort. But whenever these teams would start making these discoveries that you were part of, you, you could, it was palpable, you could feel it, you could taste it, you knew as, you know, wow, this core, if we're not into the sweet spot, we're really darn close. And I got that sense from the geologists on site who work for Max. And I got that sense myself when I was actually looking at the core photos and actual videos from the core itself. And, um, you know, the, people think that these overnight successes are, you know, how should I say a dime a dozen. Um, a good good friend of mine, Keith Laskowski says, uh, what did he say? He said, an overnight discovery uh, takes 10 years or more. <laughs> and, you know, that's, and that's the truth. There's a lot of work that, that goes into these things. Um, in terms of the size, well, you know, we, there are a bunch of different areas in terms of the signatures, uh, very much, a, again, as I mentioned earlier, the same geology, the same structural conditions, the same alteration that's related to Delamar in Florida. But a really kind of interesting thing that Max did earlier on, and, and kudos to Max, Max is, is one of the best low sulfidation epithermal geologists out there. He's world-renowned, did his PhD in it. Um, he, he recognized black sheep for the area that it is. What, you know, and you mentioned he brought you out there and said, hey, take a look at this material. It's the, all this sinter that's out here. It's all mineralized. It's, it's a big area. What he did was, was very clever, in fact, genius, is that he didn't go on his hunch alone. He brought in two other specialists, if you will, um, from different parts of the earth. Jeff Edenquist from Ottawa, um, Canada, and Dick Silito from the UK at different times. Um, and he brought them in and he said, okay, you know, what do you think? Have a look at this, these areas. And where are we gonna find the next Delamar, the next Florida? And both of them independently pointed to black sheep and these specific targets in black sheep as this is your best chance to find a green fields discovery out here. He didn't bring them in at the same time because, you know, A, you can never get geologists in a room to agree on anything. Uh, B, he didn't want them to influence each other. And so the fact that everybody sort of pointed to or vectored in on this area was, I think, very telling. Well, and on top of that, he also was willing to challenge his own thesis. Correct. I mean, what if Which, either of those individuals could have came in and maybe had some ideas of why that wasn't, they didn't believe 
yep. Lexus thesis, right? Or what you also get, Trevor, is is you know in our business, you'll get an ego-driven geologist who will refuse to listen to outside counsel on a target, and will say, "To heck with," um, you know, getting independent specialists in to take a look at this. I'm just going to drill these because I think they're good targets. And Max didn't do that, and that's his forte. Well, it, with these four drill holes, I mean, they were very you know, strategically placed and drilled and by no means were the returns, you know, I think like we are like, when we think of a discovery hole or, you know, we think of like, Oh, this thing hit really wide intervals or really super great. And, but it, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case where, you know, you could show signs of great mineralizations or the smoke, if you will, mm -hmm. which really sets the stage for the next, um, the next level of, of drilling. Uh, but what the the data you can get from those initial drill holes, even if it doesn't shock and awe the market, is just as valuable to really building a sustained project. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think what what hit home for me first and foremost was, you know, if you look at if you look at the cutoff grade that we used in our resource estimation in 2019, and you look at the cutoff grades that we used in the PA estimation for the you know the the pit shells around these resources, it was 0.2 gram per ton gold equivalent. And if you look at what we've just released today in the first three holes, everything's above 0.2. And, you know, there's, there's broad low grade runs that are, you know, 50, 70 meters wide that are well above that. In fact, two or three times that the cutoff grade, you know, when you start hitting that sort of mineralization in your first couple holes, it's, yeah, you know, you could start to piece together. Well, if I've hit this this long run of mineralization on this part of the anomaly, and that anomaly I can see going for another kilometer, you know, what does this area start to look like if I can keep repeating that success, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 grams per ton gold equivalent over 50 to 75 meters over a strike length of a kilometer or more? You know, you're starting to talk about millions of ounces there at that stage. And so that's why it's really exciting to us. Okay, it's not so, just smoke. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's not just smoke. Uh, it's really important. So let's talk about some of the data that you did receive. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll start with uh, Georgiana and yep. Lucky Day. It was kind of like in the center there of Black Sheep, more or less. Um, I, I, I would encourage everybody to go to the Verify uh, presentation and really get a lay of the land here. Uh, it really makes the discussion uh, simple for everybody. But at Georgiana, you hit... Uh, 2.17 grams per ton gold equivalent, uh, which is consisted of 0.66 grams per ton gold, again, over that uh, resource uh, cutoff, and then 117 grams per ton silver over 10.67 meters. So good, nice widths there. And then over at Lucky Day, you hit, uh, it was 0.44 grams per ton gold equivalent over 41.76 meters. Uh, you know, you know, given the locations of these, what what is this data telling you? And uh, do you think maybe these two targets are part of a maybe a larger system as a whole together? It's it, it's certainly pointing that way, Trevor. I mean, these two target areas are separated by over a kilometer, you know, east west. And you know, can we can we reasonably connect those two dots together and call it all one with the mineralization? No, we can't. Obviously. It would be unfair to do so because we've got more drilling to do. But we're very definitely into something to the extent that these anomalies were just drilled on the edges of these 
again, big geochemical signatures, big geophysical signatures that go on for kilometers as well. So again, you can start to piece together an argument for a really big area that's potentially well mineralized, in this case, 0.44 grams per ton gold equivalent, which is twice the, the, the economic cutoff of the PA. And, you know, if you can, again, start to put together several square kilometers of an area that has those kind of grades, man, that's game changer kind of stuff. Also kind of it, really interesting in that is in and amongst the grades that we announced in the last, uh, in, the, in this news release, there are some pretty high grade specific intervals of what we would call sort of Florida mountain style veins, individual veins that carry some pretty high grades, especially, especially silver in this context. And so what does that mean? Um, we don't know, there's more drilling to be done, but again, it kind of has all the, the, the hallmarks of what you would see at the other two deposits, Florida and Delmar. So let's move south uh, to the milestone deposit, uh, that target, which returned 1.43 grams per ton gold equivalent over 78.94 meters. Uh, there was a lot of uh, higher grade intervals within that uh, that long stretch there. But uh, George, you really get into some, you know, some pretty good bulk tonnage type of scenarios here potentially. Yeah. So, so what was interesting about the the milestone hits was. You know, Milestone, which is the southern end of the black sheep trend, really, it's where, you know, all of those big structures start really ripping up towards the uh, north, northwest. It had a small resource on it already. I think it was 20,000, 30,000 ounces by memory, something to that extent of gold equivalent. So it had a, it had a shallow pit shell around it per the last resource estimate that we did. One of the things that has proved elusive to Max and the exploration team is, you know, what's feeding this small blip of low grade bulk tonnage disseminated gold silver at Milestone. Typically in these low sulfidation, um, typically not always, but most often, the bulk tonnage disseminated gold silver sits as a bit of a mushroom cap to, um, and overlies the stem of that mushroom cap, which is the kind of the feeder or the roots to the system. So picture something that looks like mushroom shape, the stem being that those feeders, those high-grade feeders. Those high-grade feeders in, in the context of milestone have proven to be elusive up to now. In other words, we, we rarely, if ever, saw grades in the four, five, six gram per ton range, as we've shown today. And with this hole, which goes deeper than most holes on the deposit up to now, Max thinks that he's into that feeder zone. And again, another game-changing aspect to that feeder zone, if we can continue to replicate these higher grades and maybe it gets even higher grade as you go deeper because you know, these low sulfidation epithermal systems typically have a sweet spot of a boiling zone that's at a certain altitude or vertical um, depth. And um, maybe it gets even better in grade. Maybe it's not six grams, maybe it's 10, 12, 15 grams as we see at Florida Mountain as we go deeper. Maybe that's the situation at Milestone. Early days, but it certainly, again, speaks to the fact that we've got a lot more drilling to do out there. Could it potentially, just given the location at Milestone, it almost it seems like it's almost an extension of the mineralization from Delamar? You talked about a feeder zone. Is there a thesis believing that potentially that's the same feeder system that drove Delamar? 
so it's certainly part of the same event. It, I mean, from a topographic perspective, Delamar and then over to Milestone, you're jumping a valley. So it's the same structure for sure. There's no question. They line up, you know, they're dead aligned to each other. There's separated by a valley that would be, I don't know, maybe a kilometer or so wide. Um, is it an extension? Very definitely. So is it related to the same mineralizing event? For sure it is. We just, again, it's early days for Milestone. Yeah. We need, we've got lots more drilling to do out there. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about the strategy moving forward with drilling, but I do also want to get your give you an opportunity to talk about the uh, IP data that you also got and how what you found at uh, Black Sheep is very similar to Delamar. Uh, you, you just mentioned it in the video that you released in the news release with these drill results. So I was hoping maybe you could share a similar context of that idea with our listeners here on the podcast. Yeah, sure. So, you know, typically in, in not all, but some gold systems, you, you land on a, a technique of um, a tool, if you will, um, that, that works better than other tools for finding gold. And we you know we've, We've tried many of them. We've tried airborne magnetics. We've tried uh, airborne EM. We've tried uh, airborne radiometrics, ground mag surveys, you know, the whole nine yards. What we found is induced polarization or IP. It's basically think about taking a, a large uh, car battery, sticking probes into the ground, turning that car battery on, zapping voltage into the ground and then switching that current off and seeing what the decay is, how quickly all that, that, that voltage decays. And I've really simplified it here, Trevor. And then, you know, every <laughs> geophysicist on, on earth will kill me for this analogy, but that's essentially what it is. You're basically running a big current through the ground and, and seeing how quickly that, that current decays once you've shut it off. Um, induced polarization chargeability basically is a measure of that. How much, you know, what, what the, how long that current stays in the ground and what that's related to is the, typically the sulfide metals that are in the ground that are related to gold and silver or the clay alteration in the ground that's also related to gold and silver. So those two elements are important, both at Delamar and at Florida. And what we've noticed is IP chargeability is, is a bit of a dead ringer for outlining the Delamar uh, I can't call it an ore body for 4311 purposes, the deposit, let's just say. IP chargeability and the outline of the, of the resource are kind of a one-for-one -one correlation. So we know it works. So then we took that technique and we brought it to Black Sheep and we ran just that part of Georgiana and Lucky Days. And we, got, we obtained the same signatures, the same really high chargeability uh, responses um, from that part of Black Sheep as we did at 3.3 million ounce Delamar deposit to the Southeast. And so again, that gives you an indication that, heck, there's a lot of sulfide up there. There's a lot of clay alteration out, out there. Something's going on geologically to have caused that, that might be similar in nature to what's going on at Delamar. And where we drilled these last holes is just on the edges, not really on even the strongest parts of the anomaly by no means. In fact, if you look at it, we're just on the edges of these anomalies. So again, lots more drilling to be done yeah. out there, but it's a huge area. You know, obviously I'm not a geologist and nor am I educated in that, but I mean, from everything that I've read today and listened and watched, it's hard to believe that 
something like an event that created Delamar. Could, like if, if it wasn't happening at the same time, if not shortly before or after Delamar, I would be shocked. Just yes. given so many similarities. Agree. That's being described. Um, Agree. So we got a couple other things we got to talk about, but I want to talk about moving forward. Obviously, there's a couple of targets there to the north yet of Black Sheep. Uh, I, are those S, are those, uh, is that core in the assay lab right now or waiting to be drilled? We haven't, we haven't drilled those okay. areas yet. Yeah, we, start, we started with Lucky Days in Georgiana because it's the southern end of the Black Sheep trend closer to Delamar, more accessible. Not that we couldn't get up to those areas called Twin Peaks, Lucky Days, and Argentum. Um, uh, but, and we will get there. Um, in terms of what those anomalies look like, we haven't done geophysics over them, but we've done soil geochem. And in the case of Twin Peaks and Statute Hills, gold silver anomalies are in fact larger than Lucky Days in Georgiana. So again, we've got several square kilometers of anomalies to test in areas that are just kind of wide open. Surface sampling certainly shows that there's something there. There are old workings up there, so we know that the old timers work these areas underground. Um, but we got to drill. What about uh, drilling in between the milestone and the Georgiana? Will you start kind of connecting that a little bit and uh, here in the near future? Yeah, that, that's an area called Dido, which is another one of Max's favorite areas. And they do connect up. Um, we do have some surface sampling in there that indicates that those structures run straight through there. And we'll get to those. But for that, we have to wait for the snow to melt. Okay. Well, if that wasn't enough for everybody, uh, you're continuing to drill outside the current resource boundaries at Florida Mountain, Delmar. I mean, there's, there's a lot of drilling going on. The, the PFS that's coming down the pipeline later this later this year, I think, is still the time frame, right? Yeah, okay. the uh, beginning of the fourth quarter. This beginning year. of the fourth quarter. Um, so obviously everything, the, it continued infill drilling uh, down at Delamar, Florida Mountain. Will in this? Will you? Do you think you'll be able to add some of the stuff from Black Sheep to that study? To to this to the next resource estimate that will then support the PFS. No, it's it's still really early days. Um, that would that would involve literally putting the brakes on the PFS study now so we could do more drilling and that just, it wouldn't make sense. You know, at some stage, at some stage, you, you know, you have to start thinking about developing something out there and that's PFS is that kickoff stage for us. So that'll continue unabated. Drilling will still continue from an exploration perspective for the, for the next two years, even while we're past PFS and into project permitting and on into development, exploration has to continue out there. I mean, if, if today's, news release proved nothing else is that we have yet another front to expand resources on. And why would we not test it? Well, and that's the thing. I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. you got this whole massive land package that seems like it's obviously double the size. Maybe perhaps the opportunity is there uh, to increase the ounces. But I mean, even as it stands with just Florida Mountain and Delamar, I mean, you still have a I don't know. Like I, I posed this question on Twitter not too long ago. It was like, do you consider Delamar a tier one asset yet? And in my mind, no, it, in my mind, do you, it is. Do you? I mean, I would. I, I know what my answer is. Yes, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean, 
and I think it's a, and I think people who are following Integra realize this. I mean, and I, and because I wanted to go back and ask you about this um, at the market equity program that you announced uh, right before the end of the year in uh, in December. And you know, when I read this, like that was the first type of um, equity program of its kind I had read and tried to understand. And what I realized is like. It shows you the strength of the institutions that are backing Integra Resources, knowing that whatever you guys are going to need, institutional money can come in and support you. And I think that's incredibly powerful. Uh, but give give us your you know wh- how were you able to do it? Is that the is that the thought process? Is that you know is that the green light for this thing to make it happen? Well, so the the. The ATM, which we announced uh, between Christmas and New Year's, that I, I, I know everybody in the back of their minds as well. These these folks were trying to pull a fast one by sneaking this in between Christmas and New Year's and you know keeping it under the radar screen. Absolutely not. We it's something that we've been working on for a while um, that we just needed to get out there from a regulatory perspective that this facility was in place. Let's look at kind of the primary reason for that facility. Uh, which is a two-year facility, which we can exercise at our discretion when we believe the share price is healthy enough to do so. And obviously we don't think that that's anywhere near the case right now. Um, As everybody knows in your audience, we listed on the NYSE in July of last year. And the the, the purpose of that was really to focus on US retail investors. That's that's a big pool of capital to tap. And for us, that was kind of a no-brainer leap to the NYSE because, you know, we have a U.S.-based asset. We've got a U.S.-based team. We're effectively a Canadian domiciled company with an asset in the U.S. So targeting U.S. retail was the was the purpose of the NYSE listing. And the ATM was largely speaking, put in place to facilitate that. Right. Get get shares into the hands of U.S. retail. You know, a successful company, typically one of the hallmarks of a successful company is trading liquidity and enhancing trading liquidity by focusing on U.S. retail, which is, you know, one of the largest retail captive audiences in the entire planet is the smart thing to do. And the ATM kind of facilitates that if we believe that the share price is at the right spot over the next two years and there's U.S. retail demand, we can we can direct them to the ATM at any time. And then that just kind of liquidity breeds liquidity. And if you look at all the successful companies who have gone down the road, they've 90% of them have used this same strategy. We didn't invent anything new here. Um, that was the purpose. But not everybody can go ahead and do that. You know, no, I- you have to have a certain size and and trading liquidity. And you know, again, access to the U.S. market through a U.S. listing is right. is key to that as well. Um. Again, I think this news with Black Sheep, you and I, I think I could continue to talk to you about the latest developments out of Black Sheep for another hour, George. But I mean, I, you know, I've been a longtime shareholder of Integra. Uh, I have held and I have held uh, and I knew it was something special. After seeing Black Sheep and these results and, and listening to and having you walk through everything, uh, I'm reaffirmed. <laughs> and uh, is 
you know, but you know, I got to ask you, and I, and I know you're the CEO of this company, and so you, you're going to say what you're going to say, but you've done this before, but this seems just so goddamn special. Yeah, on so many on so many levels, Trevor, it, it's special to the extent of size for sure. It's a big it's a big gold silver deposit, and they're quite rare. It's also it's also a rarity when it comes to location. There's just not too many. There's not many of these out in the Western U.S. or in North America, full stop, that aren't in the middle of a wilderness area, or you know, or are not sort of surrounded by national forests, which is certainly not the case in our in our uh, respect. Um, they're not remote. This is not remote. It's got a highway within 20 minutes drive of. Uh, the, uh, the dead center of the project. So it's got so many things going for it in, in this great state of Idaho that has this great history of, of mining gold and silver and, and other metals. So it's got all those things going for it. So yes. Yeah. I think it's probably not. It's probably, it is the best deposit I've worked on in my entire career. And I've worked on some big ones before. Usually they're out in jungles where people are, you know, wanting to kill you for some reason or another this isn't that case <laughs> well you think about it the last time uh, you, you guys sold a project off it turns out the company that bought it from you had higher grade hits just like you know last year and i remember you were going back and forth i mean what if black sheep is that opportunity that you don't miss this time yeah well <laughs> yeah. that's 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 part of the game right you want to right. flesh out as much potential as you can before you a either build or b transact it that's yeah. That's our game game plan anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, real quick comment from you. I know you're in the gold mining business, obviously, working in the state of Idaho. Idaho just passed a law that they can buy and store gold in their state treasury. Amazing. Isn't that something? Amazing. Yeah, if we can only get a Canadian government to do the same. I mean, we <laughs> we sold all of the central bank holdings in Canada years ago. Nice to reverse that, but you know, hats off to Idaho State and the Idaho State Legislator for passing that bill. Yeah, uh, George, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always, appre- always appreciate your time, man. And uh, we continue to solve the world's problems one conversation at a time. One conversation at a time. Uh, that's George Salamis. He's the CEO of Integra Resources. They trade on the NYSE American with ITRG, and also on the TSX Venture with ITR. Thanks, everybody. That is a wrap for us this week. We'll be back again Monday morning with the news briefing. Take care. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.